A lot of what I have to do is confined by my disease. I am constantly having to be aware of my surroundings. It dictates what I can and can't eat. A lot of times I don't eat when I have to do things, such as be away. I remember one time I went to the doctor and she asked me all these questions one after the other. Do you know how you're going to do this? Do you know how you're going to do this? And I panicked and I didn't know any of them. And she said, it's probably not going to work. That was tough. For a very short time, it felt like my relationships with my friends could keep looking the same as they did before I got sick. That I could still, you know, maybe I could hang out with them as much. Maybe I can still do the same things. But the more sick that I got, the more weight that I lost, I kind of split off into my own path by myself. Hi, friend. This is Dr. Chuck Betters. And we are with Mark Inc. Ministries, and this is one of our many resources in our series entitled Learning to See When the Lights Go Out. We are privileged today to have with us three very special people. And uh, first of all, I would like Sharon to explain exactly what we're doing here today and uh, who our guests are. Sharon? Thanks, Chuck, and welcome to what we know is going to be a really special interview with three very special people. The Learning to See When the Lights Go Out audio library is a collection of interviews with people who have experienced or are experiencing life-altering crises. And we have uh, produced resources on the loss of a loved one, breast cancer, autism, alcoholism, adultery, uh, terminal illness. And as you can see, these resources address topics that are very difficult to talk about and are often hidden pains in people's lives. The purpose of each resource is uh, for those who are being interviewed to share their story in a transparent way that offers help and hope to hurting people. Someone has said that the person who has no experiences in the dark has no secrets to share in the light. And the people who are involved in these resources have walked in darkness and are sharing the secrets of their journey in the light in order to help you, the listener. Today, we have, as I said, three very special people who are going to talk about living with chronic illness as a young person. We have a resource called uh, Chronic Illness, and it is with three women who are living with the daily uh, hard places of chronic illness, but they experienced this chronic illness as adults. Uh, They had already lived many years without illness, And so their experience is quite different from a person who either starts out life with an illness that impacts every day of their lives, or someone who, as a young person, discovers that uh, their lives are forever altered by medical issues. And so these very precious friends of ours um, realize the need because they're often asked by parents and by young people, how do I live with purpose when every day is a struggle? And so I want to introduce you to, uh, to them, and I know that this is going to be a very powerful time as they share their own stories. So Stephanie, why don't you tell us uh, what your chronic illness is? I have celiac disease, colitis, and Sjogren's syndrome. And Tim, how about you? I have a form of congenital muscular dystrophy. And how old are you, Tim? I'm 20. And Steph, how old are you? 22. 
And Stephen, what about you? I am 20 years old and I have ulcerative colitis. I was diagnosed at age 16, but didn't really feel any effects of the disease until I turned 17. And how about you, Steph? I was diagnosed when I was 17, but I had been sick for a long time beforehand, probably starting at 16. And Tim? I have had the muscular dystrophy since I was born, but I actually didn't know what it was until I was 14 years old. Before then, it was just a a general diagnosis of muscular dystrophy. One of the things that I think is important for everybody who is listening to this is how has your illness affected your daily life? Uh, Are you lying in bed all day long? Are you hospitalized in and out of hospitals? Uh, Is your life active, inactive? Uh, Tim, let's start with you. My daily life is somewhat affected. It does take me longer to do everyday normal things, everything from walking around, making meals. Other than that, I try to be as active as I can be. What are you doing with your life? I am a student at Drexel University. I'm in a master's program. I'm about three years into it. And how does that affect you as far as the commute and going back and forth to classes? And I know it's difficult for you to walk. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that kind of struggle is? Yeah, so when I'm in Philadelphia, I have to use a walker to get around campus. My balance is not good enough on the bumpy sidewalks in Philadelphia. And it can be tough if I have classes back to back. It can be tough to get across campus in time. But my professors have been great about it. I just take my time. It's just something that I've, I've dealt with. And Stephen, what about you? What does your daily life look like as you, you battle with, uh, with the disease that you have? A lot of what I have to do is confined by my disease. I am constantly having to be aware of my surroundings and when I can and can't use the bathroom. It dictates what I can and can't eat. A lot of times I don't eat when I have to do things, such as be away for a long time. I'm a student at the University of Delaware, and when I have classes back to back to back, I know I can't use the bathroom. So a lot of times I don't eat for 24 hours so that I can stay strong. You have to plan your day then. You have to plan hour by hour. Right. So that your disease basically controls your schedule. Exactly. Stephanie, what about you? My disease is really similar to Stephen's. I also have to be very careful what and when I eat. Eating is quite painful at times, so I have to plan what I'm doing and when I eat around what I'm doing and where I am, what my surroundings are. I'm extremely limited in what I can eat, one of those crazy gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, everything-free diets. Um, So on the outside, my life looks the same as a lot of other people my age. Um, I do have a job. I do teach piano lessons. Um, But, you know, looking closer, there's a lot of adjustments that have to be made so that my life can look like everybody else's life. I tire easily, take a lot of naps, need a lot of sleep, that type of thing. How do you feel about having to make all those changes or adjustments in your life? It would definitely not be my first choice to make them, but I, you know, don't have much of a choice and I I would like to keep doing the things that I do. So those adjustments and, and all of that planning and consideration, it's just necessary to keep doing what I'm doing. And how about your family and friends? Do they get it or do you have to explain over and over again? I would say Family is different because they live with me and they see the effects of my disease on my daily life. Friends, I definitely would say I have to explain it over and over and over. 
I get a lot of, why can't you do this? Or, you know, it's not a big deal. We'll we'll accommodate for you and this and that. And it's all well-meaning, but it's not necessarily an option for me to do the things that they do. So I definitely find myself explaining it all the time. Tim, when you graduated from high school, you made it clear that, that you had dreams that you were going to pursue, and that required moving away from home. How was your family with your dreams? Did they uh, say, yeah, this is great? Or were they scared and nervous about you being on your own? I think my parents were great. My mom, I couldn't have done any of this without her going to doctors and, and trying to intercede for me as much as she can. Some of the doctors I had were, you know, sort of against it. I remember one time I went to the doctor and she asked me all these questions one after the other. Do you know how you're going to do this? Do you know how you're going to do this? And I panicked and I didn't know any of them. And she said, it's probably not going to work. That was tough. Tim, I saw your x-rays at one point before you had your surgery. And I looked at those x-rays and I, I said, how are they ever going to fix this? How could they possibly fix this? Because I saw your spine and what it all looked like, and it was it was pretty horrific to look at. And I know you went through a very painful time with the surgery. And did you ever doubt whether or not you'd be able to live the kind of life that you're living right now? Yeah, for sure. It took years to recover from that surgery. And the first few weeks after I had the surgery, I was convinced that I was not going to walk or have any sort of normal life. And when you had those doubts that you were ever going to walk again, and also hearing what you just said about the doctors telling you you could not do this or you could not do that, what, what was it that turned you in a direction that you're now heading? What changed? If it wasn't for my faith in God that he would see me through this and just remembering his promises that he would be faithful, I would have given up on myself. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I'm thinking of where you're going to school right now. You're going to Drexel University, uh, probably um, a seat of liberal thought, and that faith and faith in Christ, etc., is probably not something that is commonplace on the campus. How how is your faith getting you through each day? Each day that you're there, the, the trouble that you have walking, the trouble that you have commuting, etc. How is your faith sustaining you? There are definitely a lot of situations just in the short term where I, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to get in this building. And it's, it's great to be able to pray about it and see the results. And longer term, it, it gives me hope. There's a lot of people um, that I've met with my disease, and they don't have the same hope that I have. And you can tell. Tim, you talked about moments where you just thought you were never going to walk again and how your life was not going to be what you wanted it to be. How did your parents help you over those hurdles? They let me know dreams I should pursue. Um, I remember I wanted to go right into, you know, an engineering school. I had just graduated from high school, um, but I had also just had the spinal fusion. So my parents came up with the idea of going to a community college for two years to, you know, get my general requirements out of the way. It would be a good adjustment. That was something that I didn't really want to do, but 
they made very good points about how jumping right into an engineering school, you know, there really were a lot of things that, that had to be worked out first. And by the time I finished at Delaware Technical Community College, I was at a point where I knew the things that I needed to, to work out, the Office of Disabilities, you know, all those things. I had it worked out and I was able to start at Drexel and that was all their idea. And it was a great compromise from what I wanted to do and what was actually possible. So you would say they didn't throw cold water on your dream, but they said, let's look at options on how we can help you get there. It might take longer than you wanted. Exactly. Yeah. Stephen, when I came to see you in the hospital, I was first exposed to the kind of disease that you had. I didn't know exactly what it was. But I remember seeing you in the hospital, and you were a very sick pup. Uh, and your mom and I went out into the hallway, and she broke down and sobbed hysterically. And it was a very, very painful time for her because she really thought that we were going to lose you because you were that you were that sick. And the treatment for your disease didn't seem to be forthcoming. Uh, do you remember that particular time, and uh, do you remember how you felt during that time? Because you were, you were a few years younger than you are right now. I went through some very stressful times when I was 16, some very interesting situations that I blamed myself for. Ulcerative colitis, is, they say, is caused by high amounts of stress. I was stressing a lot, and... I ended up going into the hospital at the end of my 10th grade year, and I went into the hospital, and I didn't want to because hospitals scared me. I don't know if I would have made it if I didn't go to the hospital, and I did. The pain was like nothing I've ever felt before. I had lost so much blood. I look back now, and I'm scared because I didn't even see how bad it was. I don't think that I could even leave the bathroom. I would use the bathroom every 10 minutes, and it was just blood. And I couldn't get any pain medicine. I, I would just have to sit in there and suffer through pain. And my mom had to watch me do that. And I, I feel worse for her than I did for me because I think I had faith that I would make it. I was ignorant at the time to how bad it was, but she knew how bad it was. And she had to suffer and watch me suffer. It was, it was really hard, but I think we both just had to trust God. And I think the thing that happened was, I think it was just one night. I w it was the worst it had ever been. It was one weekend, and everything that they were trying was just going backwards, and it was only getting worse. I was throwing up because the pain was so bad, and she couldn't do anything. She was just watching me. And I got, I got out of the bathroom and went, like, crawled back into my bed, and we just sat there and prayed. And that's all we could do. We could do nothing else. And we didn't know there were any other options at the time. We thought we had exhausted everything we had. And the next day, the doctors came in and presented a biological immune suppressant, which basically takes away my immune system. Because what ulcerative colitis is, is your immune system attacks your body because it loses sight of what is good and what is bad. So they, they presented this, and it seemed like the miracle drug, like... Everything was perfect, and I started using it, and literally the first day, we started seeing improvements, and the doctors were like, I've never seen this before. And one day, you've seen ridiculous improvement, and it was really eye-opening to help me. You see that God was really holding my hand through this, and that I had unfinished business on this earth. All three of you are very social people. You have a lot of friends. You interact with people socially. You're not hermits. Stephanie, you are an outstanding pianist. Uh, I watch you play the piano, and you are your heart and soul is into it. 
Uh, you're jumping up and down on that keyboard and uh, just having a grand old time. But I also watch you when you're interacting with other people, and there seems to be a real ease and confidence that you have in being around your friends. What are some of the good things and the bad things that have happened by way of friendships as your friends have responded to your illness? When I was first diagnosed with colitis and celiac and Sjogren's, for a very short time, it felt like my relationships with my friends could keep looking the same as they did before I got sick, that I could still, you know, maybe I could hang out with them as much. Maybe I can still do the same things. You know, maybe it won't be that different. But I got more and more sick. And it was like, you know, my friends and I were on the same path for a long time. But the more sick that I got, the more weight that I lost, I kind of split off into my own path by myself. So eventually, when I was hospitalized at around 73 pounds, I think my path was completely separate. It was when I was 18, and all of my friends were starting off in college. So either they moved away, or the ones that were local were thrown into a college environment where, you know, they were experiencing the most freedom of their lives. That's the point in time where they're the most free. And that was the point in time where I was um, my lowest weight being hospitalized the most and fighting for my life. And I was the least free at that point in time in my life. And so the paths definitely were completely disconnected by age 18. And it's actually really funny that you say that I'm at ease with my friends because that's that's quite a miracle. That There was a long time when I was not at ease with my friends because um, – I was jealous of what they had. I thought that there was no way that they would be able to understand what I was going through. And there is an element of truth in that, but I, uh, I didn't open up to them at all because I just, you know, wrote them off. You know, they're in college, they're free and having fun, and they could never understand what I'm going through right now. So for a long time, it was completely disconnected between me and my friends. I only had maybe one or two friends that stayed in touch with me, and they were older. They were not in college. They were not my age. So it took a long time for those paths to kind of come back. And, you know, I think that what, what brought our paths back together was um, giving on both ends. I had to open up with my friends and be honest with them about what I was going through. Like, even if I didn't think they would understand, I had to start giving them the benefit of the doubt. Like, I'm going to tell them anyway. Even if they don't understand what this is like, I'm still going to try to communicate it in a way that I know how. And, you know, then for them, I think when my friends realized, when I was honest with them, when I was open with them about what I was going through, the main thing, you know, and if you're if you're friends with someone who's going through something like this, the main thing that I think connected us again was just there were a couple of key friends that were my age that just didn't forget, like in little things. Like it would be the friends who would text me to ask me how a doctor appointment went or something little like that. Or like I would say, you know, I can't hang out tonight. I'm really tired and I, you know, I need to eat today. And so I can't hang out. And, uh, and they would respond, like instead of not responding, which some friends would choose to ignore a comment like that, they would respond with, you know, if there's anything that I can do to help you feel better today, let me know. I'll be right over. And like just for them to not forget about it, 
in little ways, even through the years. That's the combination of those things, me being honest with them and just them helping by remembering the little things that's been really encouraging. And it's different now. Now my friends and I are connected again, and it's a little easier, and it's better now. How about you, Tim? I think with a, with a lot of my friends, I used to have this sort of attitude where I was very prideful and I didn't want to have to say, I can't do this, I need help with this. Things like that were very difficult for me to say. And I almost found myself occasionally resenting some of my friends because they wanted to do things that I couldn't do. And they would, you know, go off with their other friends and do these things without even thinking, oh, Tim can't do this. And I realized, you know, how ridiculous that was. You know, they're not going through any of this stuff. They didn't think about it. I think when I uh, was more honest with them, that's when I was able to have much more meaningful friendships and be a lot more comfortable around them. What is a good friend to you? Someone who can listen to a rant and be, you know, empathetic. Um, They might not understand exactly what it is. And someone who has your back in situations. There's a lot of social situations that can be intimidating uh, with a disability. And a friend that has your back is something that is very important. Can you be specific, like social situations? What What would a friend be able to do to make a social situation more pleasant and not intimidating? If I was going to, you know, someone's uh, birthday party with my friend and we were all hanging out and talking and I sat down on a couch and it was one of those couches that just sinks in until you're two inches off the ground and it becomes impossible to get back up out of. I remember one time my friend, I guess, noticed that I had sunk a foot into this couch and walked over and just gave me his hand and helped me up without me even saying anything. That kind of thing doesn't sound like a big deal, but it it can be. Well, I think you bring up a good point because what doesn't you say it doesn't sound like a big deal, but for a young person in particular, I believe it is a big deal for grown-ups, and I consider you all grown-ups, but for people twice your age, believe it or not, that would be intimidating. But for a young person who is still kind of finding their way and the insecurities of growing up, I could see where that's huge. And so your choice would be, I'm just not going to go So because I don't want to be embarrassed. So to have a friend that you know, is, like you say, has your back. How about you, Stephen? How, how has this affected your friendships and what, what are the good things? What are the hard things? Like I said, with ulcerative colitis, it's caused by high amounts of stress, and I stress extreme amounts. This kind of dictates who I can and can't be friends with. I've had to cut off a lot of relationships that I loved having because they're just too stressful for me to handle, and they cause me to be sick. I have to be very careful about the situations I put myself in. Specifically, an example would be, I recently made a friend in college a few months ago and something happened and I just had to cut the relationship because I couldn't handle the extra stress in my life. As far as good friendships, I have over the past four years created a core group of solid friends that I can always go to. The four that they are, the, you know, I don't have like a, a, a huge group of friends. I, I have, you know, my core friends that I can always go to that. I can imagine in 20 years still being able to talk to these people, even if I haven't talked to them in five years. What responsibility do you have when it comes to friendships? Because uh, you've mentioned that you 
you were kind of jealous or you're resentful. I could see where that's a crossroads where you have to make a choice of what you're going to do with those feelings. What is your responsibility, would you say? And what would you say to another young person who says, my friends have abandoned me or they don't get me and I'm bitter and I'm hurt? What would be your counsel? What is your experience? I would definitely tell that person that it's friendship is always a two-way street. And at the time when I felt the most isolated in my life and the time where I was the most alone, I had also created an attitude that pretty much fed that isolation. And it was my attitude of being jealous of their freedom and of the fact that they could go through a normal day without being in pain. It was, like I said, just assuming that they might never understand, so I shouldn't even try to be friends with them. I think that it was hard for me to be a good friend because when I was dealing with so much pain, and even now when I deal with a lot of pain, and you have a disease where even before you open your eyes in the morning, you know, something hurts. It's hard to be concerned about little things. Um, It's hard to be concerned that you went to the store and the dress wasn't on sale that you thought was going to be on sale. And as a young person, a lot of times these are the dramas. And I had (laughs) created a definite bitterness against these little inconveniences because I didn't think that they were big enough to warrant my concern. And so if my friend had a concern that seemed trivial to me, I brushed it off. It's not important. I'm fighting for my life over here. So it was a two-way street. That was the attitude that I created. And that that is not a good attitude. You have to be a friend to have friends is what I would say. And um, it's not easy at all. I have realized that changing my attitude and realizing that, you know, really all of us have different things that our struggles in life. There's nobody that, you know, has a perfect life or a life that's free of struggle and trial. And so to acknowledge their concerns, even if they seem small to me, to acknowledge them, to not be jealous of them, but to be interested in their lives, that was really hard for me um, as all my friends who were nursing majors, which was what I originally was going to do. As they were all talking about their clinicals, it was hard for me to be excited for them. But I had to make a conscious decision, even though I didn't feel like it, to ask how clinicals were going and ask detailed questions and, you know, what about this professor who's not very nice? What did you do about her? And and uh, to be a friend in that situation helped me to have friends and it helped my friends to be more comfortable around me and to want to be concerned about the things that were going on in my life. People who experience pain or suffering of, of any sort, in your cases, it's uh, physical, they tend to grow up faster than everybody else grows up and, and things look trivial that other young people might be interested in and make a drama out of that you look at and say, oh, come on, this is this is nothing. Don't you understand what true suffering looks like? Tim, do you agree with that? Um, Am I am I reading correctly that maybe you view uh, the so-called dramas in other people's lives as come on, this is trivial. What's 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 wrong with you? Let's get a life, so to speak. Yeah, it's very true. Even just people make offhanded comments. They'll say, you know, oh, man, my back is really sore right now. You know, if they say that, you know, and I'm, you know, a few weeks into recovery from spinal fusion. I'm just banging my head against the desk. What our listeners do not know up to this point is that, Tim, you and Stephanie are brother and sister. And it's in your particular case, your family not only has one child with uh, serious illness, but they have two with serious illness. And I want to focus 
uh, a little attention for all three of you upon the role of your parents. If somebody is listening to this who is a mother or a father with a with a child in your situation, similar to your situation, what role did your parents play specifically? What role did your parents play in helping you walk through all of this? I think one of the biggest things that my mom did for me was research. What I didn't know at the time was that she was doing all of this research and basically looking at all the options, but just letting me be sick and just deal with what I had to deal with during the day. I already had a million problems on my plate and she took it upon herself to research and find the best path for me to take. I didn't know that at the time. This included things such as, you know, researching all the drugs and medication I was taking, all the side effects, and really what would be best for me in the future. I figured out later that a lot of what I was experiencing what I thought was the new normal. So, uh, for instance, my face was swelled up like a plum and I thought that was the new normal. She told me that that was a side effect. And I was like, mom, why, why didn't you tell me this is a side effect? I thought I was going to be looking like this forever, mom. And she was like, you know what, Steven, you had so many problems on your plate. You didn't need to be worrying about how you look or about, you know, what was on your face or, you know, what your arm looked like or, or this and that. She's like, you just you just need to do this. And I had your back. You know, I I knew what was happening. If you came to me and asked me, I would have told you you had enough things to worry about. I wanted to do this for you. And I think that that was very big for me, because I think if I had any more things on my plate at that time, it would have only been worse than it was. Let me let me piggyback on that. In other words, what I'm hearing you say is for your mother, this wasn't about her. She wasn't making this about her drama or her pain or her fear for you. She this was all about you and and you were the focus of her life. Yeah, she lost sleep. I mean, I would need her at any hour in the morning when we were in the hospital. I mean, I'd be waking up multiple times a night. You know, she would be making runs for me to get drinks and, you know, small muffins from all the way down the hall and going to get nurses and, you know, making sure that what the nurses were doing were the right things when I was in severe pain and they were coming in. If it weren't for her being as selfless as she was, I wouldn't be who I am today. Yeah, I think my mom is the kind of person by now, she is more of an expert on my disease than any of the doctors that specialize in it. And I think that it's been instrumental in my life and how she's basically planned out, you know, my entire how how things are going to work out at school, how things are going to work out at home and, uh, you know, transportation stuff. And she's done all of this research. On occasion, it felt as if I never got a break from that side of her. It was just about, you know, my disease and I wanted a break. I didn't want to think about any of that, but I couldn't have started at Drexel or done any of those things if she hadn't have been so vigilant. So I am Timmy's older sister, and so I had already grown up watching the way my parents responded to Timmy's disability. And I had grown up seeing, you know, the way that my parents fight for what is best medically and the way that they never give up on something that they think is right for their child. And I also definitely grew up seeing some of the stress that that brought. Um, I am actually the only biological child in my family that does not have muscular dystrophy. We have a little sister that has it, and um, we have some adopted siblings as well. But um, I am the only one 
that was not born with muscular dystrophy. And so I was extremely used to being helper. And I was extremely used to being the one that was healthy and strong and the one that could fill in for mom. If she was dealing with a Timmy thing or an Adelie thing, I could help with the other kids. That was my job. So initially, um, when I first started to get sick, there was a period of about six months where my parents noticed and I completely brushed it to the side because literally the furthest thing from my mind was that I should get sick as well and change that role in my family. So that for me, because I had grown up having that role as someone who was a helper and someone who was strong, it was very, very difficult for me to give up that role in my with my parents. It was very hard for me to let them advocate for me instead of being the one that helped them advocate for other kids. It was definitely not something that I gave up easily, and I chose to... You know, obviously they knew the medical details of what I was going through, but I really chose on a more of a mental, emotional level not to open up as much as I should have to them. I wanted to, I did not want to add any stress to their plate, and I, I didn't want to be someone that, you know, needed their help. I wanted to be someone that helped them. Not that you can't do both, but I had a very different role and it was very difficult for me to give that up. So my parents' influence for the first, I would say, three years was basically what I let it be, which at first wasn't much. But, you know, my parents have an unwavering faith and they had a really deep trust in God through the whole process that I did not necessarily have all the way through. And, you know, especially especially my dad, he would say things like, you know, someday this will be a gift. Um, and that used to make me a little bit mad. <laughs> but, you know, they just, they didn't see any of this the way I was seeing it. It was just my own self-inflicted keeping things to myself. And I would say that the more I chose to open up on a more emotional level with my parents and share with them how it was affecting me, how things really when I dropped out of school, I went to college and it didn't work out. And when I came home and had all this time with my parents that I would not have had if I had been in school, that's when their influence started to kind of take over and it became a very positive influence. And they had a great influence on my attitude and my ability to interact with other people because you know, letting somebody else help me was a big step for me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all three of you have very serious illnesses and you don't have just a common cold or a slight fever. You have life dominating illnesses. And I'm thinking about that person who maybe is listening to this right now who also has a life dominating illness that may be thinking to himself or herself, I can't do this anymore. I just cannot do this anymore. I want to quit. I want to give up. Uh, I don't want to live anymore. What would you say to that person who's listening to this right now who has lost hope? Something that was very important for me throughout this whole process and in those moments where I felt like things were hopeless were that I really had to learn how to separate my feelings from what I know is true. And my faith and my feelings were connected for too long of a time where if I was down and, you know, things were looking really bad, I would throw in the towel and, you know, he's not remembering me. 
he's not looking at me with mercy and grace and, and, you know, all these lies that, you know, just because I was feeling down and I had to, you know, I had to make that conscious decision that, okay, you know, like my feelings are this, but my faith is not going to be connected to my feelings. It's going to be different. There's a song that we play a lot at church that I play a lot on the piano called This Is How It Feels To Be Free. And I used to play that song and I used to get really mad. You know, it's this happy song with this awesome piano part and I didn't feel free. I felt like I was ready to quit. But the next line of the song after this is how it feels to be free is this is what it means to know that I'm forgiven. And that's the part of the song that I had to focus on, not the feelings. I had to focus on knowing that I had been forgiven and that Jesus has paid the price for my brokenness and for the broken world that I'm living in with sickness and disease and that I can count on the fact that he's coming back for me and that he remembers me just because he promised. That's it. Not because I felt any special kind of way about it. Not because I had any kind of special warm fuzziness about it. I just had to believe it because it's true and because that's what I know. And once those things were separated from me, I was able to say, okay, I really do feel like quitting today and it's really rough right now, but that doesn't change what I know that doesn't change that God is good and that he loves me and that he won't leave me and that knowledge is what keeps me from losing hope. Yeah I think when I look back at the times where I was um, done and I didn't think that it was even worth fighting anymore those were the times that I had to really just trust that God had a purpose for it and it's easy to to say that and it's really hard to do I think um, looking back now, you can start to see purpose to it. I know that uh, one of my surgeries that was particularly rough, I landed on some prayer chain that I didn't know anybody that was praying. I got an email from some guy named Big Jim. I had no idea who that was. He said he was praying for me. And turns out when I was recovering, we went to his church to visit him, to meet him, thank him, you know, for praying and for adding me to this prayer chain. And he, you know, introduced us to people at his church. He talked about ministry that he was doing in India. And to make a long story short, about a year later, we were adopting a little boy from India that would have never happened had I not landed on this uh, prayer chain. And, you know, I didn't know that at the time I was going through this. But, you know, when I hang out with my little brother, I think, yeah, that was worth the surgery. I think trusting that there's a purpose in everything that's uh, happening is key. You know, as a minister of the gospel, I have had the privilege to watch many people experience deep, deep sorrow, deep, deep pain in their lives. And I call it a privilege because... Oftentimes, when I walked away from visiting with folks who were in those situations, I walked away as the one blessed. I went to be a blessing and ended up being blessed by just being in the presence of of these folks who were walking through horrific difficulty. And I remember when you were hospitalized, Stephen, and I remember your mom being outside that elevator, just literally coming apart. I, I had to question God at that point and say, Lord, these these folks love you. Why are you allowing them to go through this horrible, horrible pain? I remember Tim thinking the same thing when we were all praying for you when you were in that surgery. I, I, I thought as a father how difficult that would be for me to watch my child in that much pain uh, and, and how I would just I would just want to die at that point to see my child in that kind of pain. 
And losing Mark when we did in 1993, our youngest child, when he was killed in that auto accident, one of the hardest things for me at that time was watching my family suffer, watching my kids and my wife suffer, and I couldn't do a thing to stop it. I couldn't do a thing to make them feel better. And that was extremely difficult. And it all goes back to this question. Why, God, why would you allow this kind of thing to happen? And I am sure somebody's listening to this right now who is asking that very question. And Stephen, I'm going to put that big theological question on your shoulder right now. And from your own experience, what would you tell that person sitting across the table from you right now who feels as though God has abandoned them? Firstly, God never abandons you. As alienated as you may feel, he's always there. And I think for me... One of the biggest things that I would never trade is more of an understanding that I gained from this whole experience. I remember sitting around when I was 12 years old and I was content with my life. I remember thinking, God, please don't take me away from my life right now. I'm so content being where I am in school, the friends that I have And the things that I'm doing, I'm content here on this earth. Please don't take me now. And sure, he smiled down on me and said, sure, Stephen, you can can stay on the earth just a bit longer. Just have this disease. And it completely changed my outlook on life. Instead of wanting to stay here, I was begging God to take me home. I remember also sitting through sermons of the seven deadly sins and analyzing myself and thinking, oh, I only have one of those sins. And after this disease, I reevaluated my life and looked at myself and said, I have every single one of those seven deadly sins and I am a horrible person. And I was just recently talking to my dad about Paul and I said, dad, I have this realization that I'm, I'm a horrible person. I'm the worst Christian there ever was. I, I can't be worse than I am. This disease has shown me that I am filth and I can't handle it. And he said, Stephen, you know, that's exactly how Paul thought. He said he was the worst Christian there ever was. He, he murdered people. He said he felt the same way. He's like, but you know, God can save you through all that. He's like, God is always with you. He's doing this for a reason. Be strong, you know, keep the faith that you have and keep persevering through it. If I had to say in my experience, why God, I would say there's a higher purpose that I don't know yet. God is preparing me for something that I have no idea what it is yet, but I'm looking forward to the day where I'm going to be able to take the knowledge that I've been able to obtain by getting this disease and apply it and help somebody. I have no doubt right now thinking that as you are looking for a way to redeem the pain, that somebody is listening to this who may be at the brink of I'm done. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to do this anymore. I quit. I give up. And maybe somebody right now, Stephen, who's listening to what you have to say, is, is also hearing the struggle in your voice, that this is not something that you've overcome. It's not something that we say, I've gained victory in this. It's something that we every day have to say, I am gaining victory in this. And every day becomes a spiritual struggle. It's spiritual warfare. I know for Sharon and I, it's every day. It's a difficult journey to grieve the loss of one of your children. And it's a war. And that war oftentimes comes with physical consequences, emotional consequences, social consequences, where you don't want to be around people anymore. I know somebody is listening to this who you may never meet somebody you may never, ever meet who is going to have their life changed by just hearing uh, your story 
and hearing how you, even though you're struggling, how you are in faith, trusting that God has a purpose for this. What do you think is the cause of your illness? And I don't mean medically, but do you think that you are suffering this way because you're being punished for some sin in your life or because you don't have enough faith? Because let's face it, turn on the TV, listen to the radio, go on the internet. There are all kinds of faith healers out there who will tell you, just believe and you'll be well. How do you deal with that kind of counsel or thought? Yeah, I think that does come up where people say, you should really pray that God would heal you. I'll pray too. I'm Maybe you're just, you don't have enough faith and that's why you're still like this. I really like the verse, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 12. It talks about how God gave us a thorn to keep us from being conceited so that his power may be displayed in us because in our weakness, that's when the power of Christ is most seen. I like to think that God does have a reason for giving us these illnesses, and it has nothing to do with how hard you prayed away. It's His will. It ultimately is for His glory. When we lost Mark on the heels of some very serious grief on our part, we were invited to a dinner, and another lady was invited to the same dinner who claimed that she had the gift of healing. We did not know this when we went to the dinner. But her purpose in being there was to heal us of our grief. Uh, that, And I remember the question that she asked as we sat across the table from each other. She said, was your son a Christian? And I said, yes, he was. He did love the Lord. And where is he now? Well, he's in heaven right now. And her next response to me was, then why are you grieving? And I wanted to reach across the table and strangle her at that point. Uh, Sharon was sitting beside me and grabbed my leg because she knew that at that point, uh, whatever grief I had had just turned to anger. Because there are people out there who truly and honestly believe that the reason you're in the situations you're in is because somehow or another, you have sinned. And, and this is not new, because when Jesus was about to heal somebody, uh, the disciples came and they saw this this uh, this bag of bones, basically, this man who was uh, completely and totally lost in his own illness. And they turned to Jesus and they said, who sinned that this man is this way? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Because the common conception in that day was that if you were in some sort of physical situation, that was uh, what we would call today a handicap, that somehow or another it was the result of sin in your life. That was common belief in that, in that day. And so there are people out there who, who, are, who are wondering whether or not there was some sin in your life that caused this. Maybe the person listening to this is wondering, why is God punishing me? Somehow or another thinking that every illness is the result of God's punishment. What would you say to that person? I have had that same question actually asked to me, and I've also had faith healers (laughs) who want to pray my disease away in 30 seconds. (laughs) So I've experienced this as well. And I know from my own life that sometimes my definition of something is not the same as God's definition of something, because my definition of God's love for me would definitely not have included this. But in his love for me, God saw fit to allow this in my life. And I know that he loves me and that he doesn't make mistakes. So I know that my definition and God's definition are probably different about what that love looks like. My question that I always think about is, 
my definition of what is good versus God's definition of what is good? What if they're not the same thing? Because Jesus also suffered in his body when he was on earth, and I might not have called that good, but that was part of God's plan for the world, and that was part of God's plan to save me, and that required Jesus suffering in his body. You know, people who think that this disease couldn't have come from God, it had to be a punishment because God only gives good things. I just think that maybe my definition is different and I don't know his ways and that's okay. I want to build a scene for our listener. I, I, want, to, I want you to imagine this scene that you are in the group of Jesus' disciples who abandoned him when he was taken to the cross. But you were around. You were able to see what was going on, maybe in hiding, but you're there. And you're watching the crowd going by while he's being crucified. And the crowd is going by saying, mockingly, he saved others. Can he save himself? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And these men, I am sure, probably snap their heads toward Jesus as though to say, yes, that's right. Come down from that cross and heal yourself. Show them. Prove it. We've seen you prove it in other situations and other circumstances. We've watched you raise the dead, come down from that cross. And instead, heaven was silent and Jesus was silent. And instead, he went to the cross and paid the full price for my sins and your sins and the sins of all who will trust in him. And the bigger purpose, the greater purpose there was he came to fulfill the will of the Father. He came to complete a work. And I see in the three of you a similar task, that your responsibility is to finish the work that God has given you for whatever purpose he has in store that you may not ever know in this life, that eventually you will know when you get to heaven, oh, I see what he was doing. I did not understand it then. I understand it now because the scripture does tell us that now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And God makes it clear to us that things that happen here on this earth to us are also things that he designed. They were filtered through his sovereign hand for a much greater purpose. And that purpose was to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. So he will owe us nothing. He will owe you nothing. God will be debtor to no man. So whatever faithfulness you have expressed in your life, your reward will be greater because God will owe us absolutely nothing as we remain faithful to him. What you have heard today are living testimonies. The scripture refers to these as living epistles, uh, letters to be read of all men. And I appreciate so very much the vulnerability of the three of you coming in here and sharing so intimately with us uh, the details of your illness and more specifically, the courage of your faith. I know for you, the listener, you have heard common themes radiating throughout this discussion, not the least of which is all three of these young people who are experiencing tremendous chronic illness have a deep faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They believe that Christ came and died on the cross specifically for them to give them not just forgiveness of sin in this life, but the promise of eternal life to come. Scripture tells us in the book of Joel, he's made a promise to us, and here's the promise. I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten, that great great and mighty locust that I have sent. In other words, God promises to be debtor to no man. He will give back what we feel he has taken away, and he will multiply it 
manifold. Friend, the question now is whether or not you are going to place your faith and your trust in man or whether you're going to place your faith and your trust in the living God. Coming to Christ is a simple act. Living as a Christian is a difficult act. But coming to Christ is the beginning. If you do not know Christ, as you're listening to this, there is a very simple question I ask of you. Would you like to put your faith and your trust in a living God who will guide and direct your thoughts, guide and direct your actions for the rest of your life, but more importantly, give you the free gift of eternal life? It begins by confessing sin to him, by receiving Christ as your Savior and Lord, by inviting him into your life, repenting of your sins, and giving your life wholeheartedly to him to guide and direct you and direct your steps for the rest of your life here on earth. And that begins with a simple act of faith, by inviting Christ to be Lord of your life. And I'd like to pray with you right now and trust that God is going to use what you've heard from these three young people today for his glory. Father, I thank you for Christ. I thank you for the hope that we have in him. And if there's someone listening right now who does not know you, I pray that they would put their faith and their trust in you in simple childlike faith, believing that you died on the cross for their sins and that you would give them the free gift of eternal life. I thank you for Stephanie, and I thank you for Tim, and I thank you for Stephen for their willingness to express in such clear ways, in such vulnerable ways, what it means to suffer from chronic illness as a young person but also to trust you and to believe that you are a sovereign God and you can be trusted. Bless this resource. Bless the listener who is listening right now. And Lord, may they come to faith in that living God, that living Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to a production of Mark Inc. Ministries. All of our resources are available for you to download or listen to on our website. You can visit www.markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C dot org. We have produced many resources in our Learning to See When the Lights Go Out series. Such topics as the loss of a loved one, suicide, sexual abuse, our entire Coming Home from War series, autism, adultery, and they're available to you as free downloads. Again, visit our website at www.markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. Thank you for listening, and may God receive all the glory for what you have just heard.